know that there's no other book in the Bible like the book of Romans. And uh, we're going to learn some things from Romans, and I think our church is at a place now where, you know, it really needs to understand the book of Romans. But we're going to have to approach every message as it's an individual study. We really are. There's so much in Romans. I told you last week, you know, that Romans basically uh, is the foundation of what we believe. I read a book a number of years ago uh, at, that called the book of Romans uh, the Constitution of New Testament Christianity. And boy, that's a great, that's a great statement. And uh, that statement was made by a guy by the name of Dr. Barnhouse, and he was a great Bible expositor. And uh, he talked about the book of Romans in his book on Romans that it was the foundation of what we believe. I told you how that uh, when I was a young guy growing up, uh, I heard another great preacher, Fred Brown, who was teaching the book of Romans at an adult Bible conference, and he said, he said the real measure of a Christian and the real, crash, the real measure and the real standard or benchmark of a man or a woman in ministry is how well they understand the book of Romans because the book of Romans is the foundation for what we believe. Remember we talked about how that you have the four historical books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you have the book of Acts, which is showing you what the apostles are doing, and then we come into the book of Romans. And what we've done now from, in our Bible from Matthew to Romans is we've made a transition. We've come from the uh, Old Testament nation of Israel and God dealing with the Jew now to a, the church, the body mystery. And the book of Romans begins to lay all that out. I told you that uh, it's really five books in one or five sections in one. And we're going to study each section thoroughly. But you're going to find it out as we take this section. We're going to break each one of these sections down into chapters. And then we're going to have to break the chapters down into sections. And it's going to be quite a lengthy study. So it's something that you're going to have to try to glean the main principle out of everything that we try to deal with week by week. And uh, I'll help you through it. Those five areas that we talked about that the book breaks down is the first section of the book. He deals with the historical aspect. And he basically shows you uh, where the book of Romans is coming from and what God now is trying to do based on what he's already done. Then the second section deals with the doctrinal section. This is where he really gets into, meat, into the meat of the New Testament church and really begins to lay out everything that we need to know about why we as a Gentile church today believe the things that we believe. The third section deals with the prophetic side of the Bible, and it really deals with the future events, how God is going to view and going to deal with the nation of Israel. These are all events that God wants you and I as New Testament Christians to thoroughly understand. Then the next section deals with the practical section. This is where we find how we operate in ministry. This is where you're going to understand what you do with people. I had a number of you uh, come to me over the last couple of weeks with some of the things that we have been saying on Sunday morning and a number of you concerned about where you're at spiritually and some kind of spiritual gauge for, you know, what you can do better. I, I bet you in the last week I had eight or nine people, maybe the last two weeks, come to me and say, hey, look, here's what I want to do. How can I do this better? Or how can I always check and see that I'm where I need to be? Well, there's a number of ways you can do that, and really the practical section of the book of Romans will, will help you with that, but uh, you're not going to have to wait that long. I'll, we'll, you know, I'll help you with it in the process, but, uh, but it's things like that. Then we have the fifth section, which is the conclusion. And uh, he says some, some in, things that kind of ties it all together. Now, today we're going to start the historical section. And uh, what we need to know about Romans that focuses on 
uh, where it's coming from so we can understand where God is going with it. And uh, I want you to, uh, uh, to just kind of focus on what I've got to say today. This is the message that I, I, it, it's a very crucial message because we've got to begin to establish some patterns of thought here. And I've told you many, 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 many times from the first time we were together studying the Bible, I told you that the job of every Christian, the job of every child of God, male or female, is for you and I to get God's mind in us. That we come to the point where we look at everything in life and see it not from our own human standpoint, but from God's standpoint. That is the essence of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is, a, when we begin the historical section, we're going to begin to get God's mindset. We're going to, in chapter 1, we're going to start to talk about Gentiles. And what happens in chapter 1 is what God wants you and I to accomplish. He wants you and I to begin to understand the thought process of Gentiles. He wants you and I to get a mindset about how Gentiles think. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but your Bible is addressed to three people groups. There's three people groups addressed in your Bible. The first people group that is addressed in your Bible would be the nation of Israel. And you're going to find many, many places where God is specifically talking to the Jews. Most of the Old Testament, if not all of the Old Testament, uh, is focused toward the nation of Israel. And it's hard as a Christian to take everything out of there and apply it straight into my life because he's directly talking to the nation of Israel. Now, the second group of people that is addressed in there is, is the church. And the church is in the New Testament, and God writes, Paul writes his books to the church, and uh, he writes those books to the churches and to individual Christians that really helps them understand the instructions that God has for us. So there's, there's, there's the church's address. But then the third group that is addressed in there in the Bible is the Gentiles. And you're going to find that there's places in the Bible where God is not talking to the nation of Israel. He's not talking to the church. He's talking to the Gentile nations. You find a lot of this in the Old Testament in the books of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a book that is it's written to the Jew, but much of it ha is also written to the Gentiles because in the book of Ezekiel, he's basically addressing the Gentile nations and saying to them, I'm going to judge you and I'm going to destroy you. And much of the Old Testament prophets deal with the destruction of the Gentile nations. So he speaks to them directly. Your job and my job as the Christian, and this is where the Bible becomes confusing. And I'm not going to take away all the confusion today, but I can at least point you in the right direction. you got a lot of people out today that are confused on a lot of things in the Bible. And uh, the reason why people are confused on the Bible is because basically they cannot discern between when God is speaking to the nation of Israel, when He's speaking to the church, or when He's talking to the Gentiles. And when you cannot discern in the Bible which group He's talking to, because the Bible is written to three different groups, and you can't take what's written to a Jew and apply it to the church. You can't take what's written to the church and apply it to the Jew in the Old Testament. And many times you can't take either one and apply it to the Gentiles. God is addressing. Point number one. <clears throat> God addresses three people groups in the Bible. Your job and my job is to be able to understand when we read the Bible which group He's addressing. That's so crucial. When you don't, then you get things that are written to the Jew and you try to apply them to the church. 
Somebody was, Marion was telling me this morning that he was dealing with a couple of people at work that, that uh, believe they can lose their salvation. You know, how a man or a woman come to the place in their life where they believe they can lose their salvation? It's real simple. I don't have to turn to one verse in the Bible. I don't have to, I don't have to spend any lengthy time with a dissertation on it. I'll tell you how it is. They apply something that was written to the Jew and try to apply it into the church. When you do that, you're going to come up with bad doctrine. If there's one thing I could stress for you in learning your Bible is at some point in your life you have to be able to, to understand the three people groups and who he's writing to and be able to separate them out. It's the key to beginning to putting your Bible together. Now your Bible, your Bible in the King James 1611 here is a Gentile Bible. The Bible in the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It was given to the Jews. And it was written originally in Hebrew. When God wanted to give the Gentile world, the church is a Gentile church, when God wanted to give the Gentile world a copy of His Scriptures, He took a Hebrew Old Testament and converted it into English. He took a Greek New Testament and converted it into English and gave you and I, Gentiles, for the church, the body of Christ, which is primarily made up of Gentiles, he gave us an Old Testament and a New Testament in English to a Gentile-speaking world. Now, if you were to go back and look at a Hebrew Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you know what you'd find? You'd find the verse, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth in Hebrew. In a Hebrew Old Testament, that first verse has seven words in it. Because seven is the number of perfection in the Bible and a number of completion. And if you know anything about the Bible in Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 9, you know that Hebrew is the perfect language as far as God's concerned. It's the pure language and God is going, that's what everybody's going to speak when you get into the millennium and on into eternity. It won't be English, sorry. It'll be a pure language, he says in Zephaniah chapter 3, and that pure language will be a perfect language. And that's why the number one domination language in the Old Testament of God's people was the language of Hebrew. So in your Hebrew Old Testament, you'll find seven words. In your English Bible, you will find in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There's ten words. In your Bible, ten is the number of the Gentiles. So when God wrote a Hebrew Old Testament to the nation of Israel, He gave him seven verses showing them you by the very first verse that it was going in a perfect language to a perfect people as far as God was concerned that was going to be His people, the nation of Israel. When He took the Old Testament and the New Testament and He put it into an English for the Gentiles, He put ten words in it. So if you're paying attention and know your Bible, you know that Ten is the number of the Gentiles. In Genesis chapter 6, you have a man by the name of Noah. You count up his genealogies, he's the tenth man from Adam. You know where the first Gentile kingdom is found in your Bible? You might guess Genesis chapter 10, verse 10. You know where in Genesis chapter 24, you've got uh, Isaac uh, getting a bride. And his father sends out uh, Eleazar uh, to find a bride for his son. And uh, he finds Rebecca. And when you study the whole picture and lay the whole thing out, you'll find that she's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. And what you have there is the father sending out the servant, Holy Spirit of God, finding a Gentile bride for his son, Isaac, a type of Christ. 
So when they get out there and they find his bride, they take along ten camels. She's a Gentile. I didn't say ten packs of camels. I said ten camels. <laughs> Saw some of your eyes light up when I said that. <clears throat> ten camels. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I like cigars myself, but that's okay. Ten camels. In Acts chapter 10, what do you have? The gospel goes to the Gentile. In Acts chapter 10, you find the first full-blown Gentile, Cornelius. He's an Italian from the Italian band, a little polka group that used to play at all the weddings. In John chapter 10, it talks about Gentile sheep. And the Bible says they're not of this fold. You're going to find in Romans chapter 10, salvation goes to the Gentiles. And the last Gentile kingdom in your Bible is represented by ten toes of Daniel image. Ten is the number of the Gentiles. So when you and I begin to understand, and this is so important, when we start to come to Romans chapter 1, what we're beginning to understand about Romans is this. God has made His transition from a Jewish Old Testament nation, and now God has changed His emphasis to a Gentile bride for His Son, which is called the church the body of Christ, or as a couple of Thursday nights, somebody asked about the body mystery. And that church will be made up of primarily Gentiles. Romans chapter 1 shows us as New Testament Christians, we have to understand the mindset of Gentiles. You know why? Because that is our job as a Gentile bride of Christ, is to reach other Gentiles. And you have to understand how, to, how they think before you can actually minister to them. Hey, let me tell you something. You know, if you would boil the ministry down and if you would really want to say to me, Bob, what is really the key to reaching people? It's really very simple. It's not, hard, it's not easy to do, but it's in concept it's pretty simple. The way you reach people is basically penetrating their culture. Every people group has their own culture. When you as a child of God don't get locked into one particular culture. And we do that as Gentiles. That's why we have the race issue we have today in this country, which is a terrible situation. Because a lot of Gentiles are locked into who they are and they don't understand that you are no better than the other person no matter what color you are. Red and yellow, black and white, they're all precious to a sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Here we go. Sing it. That's the way it works. And when you begin to understand that every people group has its own culture, your job and my job as an effective minister is to learn that culture, accept that culture, understand where it's different from my culture, and then not to reject that culture, but to use the gospel to penetrate that, that culture. Gentiles are not only a culture, there are many subcultures within that culture. And when you learn the basic concept of penetrating that culture, and for me, reaching people is just a simple, uh, uh, simple three-point concept. For me to reach you, And to deal with you, and I do this all the time, you don't know it. But when I sit down with you or you come to this church and you come to me and you say, hey, I want to learn the Bible or I want to do this, I want to do that, I automatically put three things to work in my life for you. 
I change my focus and my attention to you, and I then look at you in, and try to find out three things about you as a Gentile. And it is the key to reaching people. First of all, I want to understand, I have to understand why Gentiles do the things that they do. The second thing I want to know is I want I have to know, I have to know why Gentiles say the things that they say. You ever listen to a Gentile speak and listen to a Jew speak? They don't speak the same thing. They don't look at things the same way. The third thing is I need to understand why you see things the way that you do. Now, this is the failure of the church as far as I'm concerned. We got a bunch of bigoted pastors who do not want to move outside their culture. If you don't think like they do, you're out of luck. They don't see themselves as a Gentile. They think that they're something special, and in reality, they, they, their own Christianity culture is something that you've got to conform yourself to and throw out everything that you ever thought about anything, and you've got to become like them. I don't want you to be like me. I want you to be like Christ. You've been around here very long and you, you talk to people about what we teach. Most of you have already been labeled and people look at this and they look at this church and because of our hard stand on the Bible and our hard stand toward the things of God, you know, uh, the goofy people out there in life who know nothing about life at all, they, they, they look at you as a cult. And they look at me as a cult leader. Any day now they're expecting us to bring in big vats of punch and, you know, have you all drink it. You know, and you know, I'll go off into La La Land someplace, you know, and then they'll come carting our bodies out in body bags, you know. And, uh, and let me tell you the difference. Let me tell you why this is not a cult. And you can use this the next time, you know, somebody says something to you. Cults will tell you what you are to think. Cults, a man will stand up here and tell you what you need to think. I never want to stand up here and tell you what you need to think, but when I stand up and preach to you, I hope it makes you think. That's the difference. I don't want to tell you what to think, but I want you to think about what you believe, who you are, what you're involved in. I don't want you to accept the Bible at face value of what I tell you it is. I want you to think for yourself and find out if it is or it isn't the Word of God. I don't want you to, I don't want you to do to, to to just buy into everything it says. I want you to think for yourself. Many of the things that I say to you, I say to you, not so you'll go out of here and just repeat it, but you'll think about it and it'll motivate you in the right direction. That's what's wrong with God's people. They're robots. Many of God's people don't want to think. They want somebody else to do their thinking for them. They're like Roman Catholics. They want somebody else to keep their religion for them. Go live your life all week long, live it like hell, do what you want to do, and go in on Saturday night and have somebody fix it for you. Baptists are the same way. You, wanna, you want somebody to go in, you want to sit down, you want somebody to tell you how nice you are, how good looking you are, how successful you are, how wonderful you are, and you want to walk out of here feeling good about yourself. I don't want you leaving here feeling good about yourself. I hope there's never a time in your life when you leave here that you don't have something you got to work on. 
Now, I know you're not going to be perfect in life, and I know that you're never going to get to where none of us are, but the bottom line is this. You can perfect yourself, and the art of perfecting yourself for the ministry of God is simply looking at yourself 24-7 and saying, okay, today, what do I got to work on today? You don't do that unless you think. And reaching people is basically Gentiles, is knowing how they think, knowing why they do the things they do, knowing why they say the things they say, and why they look at things the way they do. And boy, Romans chapter 1 really lays that out in a fine art. The ministry, simply and plainly, is trying to perfect imperfect people. It's trying to take people who are imperfect and perfect them, not to sinless perfection, but on a daily basis of perfecting themselves to be more like Jesus Christ for the work of the ministry. That's the job. And to do that, you have to understand Gentiles and the way they think. You will never reach and penetrate the culture of the people that you work with until you understand why they say the things that they say, why they, how they look at the things they look at, and why they do the things that they do. And until you have the ability to do that and maintain your own separation from it, but understand it, you're never going to reach them. Never going to reach them. Romans chapter 1 follows a great principle that's taught all the way through the Bible. When God deals with us or we deal with God, it starts with an attitude. That's God word. We look up at God and we say, God, I love you. I want to have a relationship with you. You look God word. Well, after you look God word, then you know where you got to look? you got to look inward. Once you say to God, God, I want you in my life. I want to do this. I want to do that. I love you. God says, okay, I love you too. Where's the next place you got to look? Once you look Godward, you got to look inward. And you got to fix what's wrong with you on the inside, no matter what that may be. Once you look inward, and then you get that fixed, then you have the ability to go outward. That's the process. That's a great principle taught all the way through the Bible. The key is changing the inside, not the outside. 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Bible says, For God doesn't look at man like, uh, see as man does. The Bible says that man looketh on the outward appearance. But God sees the heart. Why? Because you'll never fix something from the outside in. You always got to fix it from the inside out. That's a principle taught through the Bible. So my point is this. If you're going to deal with Gentiles, if we as a Gentile church are going to reach out to other Gentiles, which primarily is what we're going to reach, then we are going to have to understand it from the inside out, not the outside in. In biblical counseling, we call this treating the symptoms instead of solving the problems. In most problematic situations where you come in and you have an issue in your life, and you sit down to a counselor, Christian counselor, secular counselor, whoever, they will misdiagnose you totally and completely. They will, they will look and listen to what you say, and they will, they will listen to all your, I'm depressed, I'm not happy, I'm not this, I'm not that, and they will look at that, and they will, they will treat the symptom instead of getting to the problem. I'm not concerned that you're depressed. The bottom line is, why are you depressed? Yes, sir. 
You're not depressed because, well, I lost my job. No, you're depressed because there's something missing inside you. Hey, it's not the size of the problem in your life. It's the size of the person in the problem. You're not depressed for you lost your job. You're depressed because there's something missing inside you. God can always give you another job. Maybe God took that job away because he's going to give you another one. Maybe he just wants you to rest for a couple of days or a week or a month before you have to do it. See? See how we look at things? We look at things so backward. And so what we do in dealing with counseling, we treat symptoms. Instead of solving the problem. You see, the problem is on the inside. The symptoms are on the outside. We try to fix what we see. I don't want to fix, I don't need to fix what I can see. I know that what I see on the outside is only a symptom of something that's drastically wrong on the inside. What good is it to fix the outside when you don't fix the inside? Now, in, in child training, and we just came through this, we would tell you that you want to change your children? You want to change your children? Then start with changing yourself. The inside. Somebody told me years ago, and I've told you this many, many times. They said, Pastor, you don't know. My kids are causing all kinds of problems in my family. And I said, no, 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 that's not true. Your kids are not causing problems in your family. Your children are exposing the problems that are already in your family. You see, he wanted to go to the outside. I went to the inside. Isn't that true, Mike, when you're in a race and you want to pass a guy, you don't try to pass him on the outside, do you? Not, all, not any of the time. Help me out, Mike. I don't know anything about racing. I only know one thing. Rubbin's racing. I know this. It's longer on the outside than it is on the inside. Bottom line is this. You don't want to go around the outside. Fix it where the inside is. In marital counseling, we, don't, we talk about the fact that you got to fix it on the inside. When the husband and wife get their right perspective about what's supposed to be on the inside, the outside take care of itself. Even in salvation, when you got saved, you had problems on the outside. You know how God fixed it? He fixed it by dealing with you on the inside. Amen. Great principle. And so for you and for me, we have to be able to understand and do that. You know, there's a great story in the Gospel of John, and it illustrates this. In John chapter 12, uh, there's a great story. It's the story of Mary and Martha. And sometime you got to read that story. Because Mary and Martha basically picture the two kinds of Christians that we have in Christianity today. And I'm sure that if you, once you hear this, and you probably already know the story, let me tell you something. I could make you a list of the people in my life, male and female, and put them in two categories. Here's all the Marthas, and here's all the Marys. Now, Martha, she was always busy. She was always moving around. Martha was always someone who wanted to have the inside track, see? Martha, she serves. But Mary, she worships. Martha's running all around the place doing everything. You know where you find Mary? You find him at her, her at the feet of Jesus. One is, one is working, one is ministering, the other one is worshiping. Okay? And those are the two kinds of Christians you have. You have lots of Christians that do lots of things. Oh, there's all kinds of movement in their life. There are all kinds of busyness. Most Christians remind me years and years and years ago, and I don't even know who bought them, but somebody bought my two girls, two little, I don't even know how to explain it. It was like a dashboard of a car. 
and you sat on the floor and you scooted your legs under and the dashboard came over your legs. Had a steering wheel on it, had a horn, had levers, buttons, and everything. And my two kids loved that more than anything else I think anybody's ever got them. And for days, days, weeks upon end, year, in fact, I was over there, Jamie was doing hers the other day. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> but for, for years, they would sit down there on the floor and put that, you know, you sit down like this on the floor, the little things over here, and you're driving along and ramming this, and you're doing this and doing the wipers, and you're like they're in a race, you know, driving each other. And, and I walked through the house one day, and they're, they're turning the flipping the switches, paying the wheel, hitting the horn, doing everything. And I thought to myself, man, is that isn't like a lot of Christians. There's a lot of movement, a lot going on, but nothing's really hooked up. That's Martha. A lot of movement. A lot of goings on. But nothing really hooked up. Martha always had to have her nose in everything that was going on. She could never stand back and say, okay, God, you take care of that. Martha's a doer person. Mary was a worshiping person. And when you read the story, it says down there, it says down there in chapter 12, verse 3, it says this. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikered, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped her hair, uh, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Now, that's an incredible story. And that really one verse sums up the whole thing. Because there you find the three things that I talked about that the book of Romans is built around. It's built around Godward, it's built around inward, and it's built around outward. Mary is a picture of what you and I ought to be. While Martha is running around sticking her nose in everybody else's business. While Martha is running around getting every, everything she can and busy serving and doing all the things, Mary is down at the feet of Jesus and she worships. And she gives God what he really wanted. Somebody said one time, I heard a guy preach this, that when it talks about the, a pound of ointment of spikered, it said that during that time in the Bible that that would cost uh, what the average person would make. Uh, for a buy a pound of ointment would take a whole year's wages to buy that. And yet, when you look at that and you analyze it, you know what that tells me? That tells me she took a whole year's wages and made him smell good for just a moment of time. She took a whole year of what she made just so he would smell good for a very short period of time. Because in time, he washed his feet, he moved on, and you couldn't smell it anymore. It tells me this. There's no sacrifice too great for me to give to God. I never count the cost when it comes to something he wants. I never look and, and, and try to angle it out when I understand that that's what God wants and that's where he's at. And when you look at this thing, Mary followed the same pattern of, of Romans and the same pattern that you have to follow and I have to follow. The Bible says that the first thing she did was she bought this very costly and she anointed his feet. You know what? That's God word. She saw him. She had an attitude that she wanted to do something for him. So she purchased it and then she anointed his feet. That's God word. But then it went inward. You know what she did? She got involved in the process. She took her very hair and wiped the oil and the spikered on his feet. Now, you know what that did? That not only made him smell good, but by association of taking and getting involved personally, the N-word, she smelled good. And then you know the third thing it says? 
The whole house smelled it. You see, it went Godward, it went inward, and then it went outward. If she wasn't willing to do that and get involved, the rest of the house would have never smelled that precious ointment. You and I, as a child of God, have the same process. The book of Romans begins to show you that process. You have to know and understand why God thinks or Gentiles think the way that they think. And for you to be able to, to, to understand how to reach them, you're going to have to take the time to understand why they do the things they do, why they say the things they do, and why they, why they look at things the way they do. You're going to have to get Godward, you're going to have to get inward, and then it's going to have to go outward. Romans follows that same pattern. Have to understand people you want to reach. You have to be willing. I've told you before, the greatest advice I could ever give a young pastor in building a church is the church has nothing to do with the cinder blocks. It has nothing to do with the tile in the ceiling. Nothing to do with the carpet. What it really makes a church and what builds a church and what it's going to take for you to build it is not getting a billboard, not putting a sign out, not getting a website. What builds a church, you have to build a church one person at a time. One couple at a time, one family at a time. It takes four times the amount of time, but the results are four times better at the end of the day. You have to go Godward, you have to take it inward, and you have to then let it go outward. That is the book of Romans. Now the book of Romans sets down another great truth that Gentiles really have a hard time with. And this is something I want you to listen to me very carefully on because it's very entailed and I won't have time to get into it all, but we're going we're to talk about it. And this is a real killer to Gentiles. Now Gentiles predominantly has always hated the nation of Israel. And if you know any even inkling of history, you know that to be true. Now the reason why it is, now we live in a world today that is, it just seems like every day, every day, it just seems like that this world is ripped apart farther. And obviously one of the, we can't do anything today in this world without race getting involved in it. It's absolutely, this world has lost its concept of what the Bible's concept is. Now I'll tell you why that is. And you got to listen to me now because I don't want you to hear me wrong and sometimes people only hear half what you say. The reason why Gentiles have a problem with God and Romans chapter 1 shows you the problems they have. We're going to detail that out in the weeks to come. But you know why we as Gentiles have a problem with God? Because we as Gentiles have been discriminated against by God. Now discrimination is a big thing today, see? Nobody wants to be discriminated against. Well, let me tell you something. I'll tell you who got discriminated against in the world, in the scope of the world. It's the Gentiles. God chose one nation and put them above all the other nations. You know, I don't like that as a Gentile. I don't appreciate that. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'm a human being just like everybody else. And the real killer today is to, is to deal with the issue that Romans chapter 1 lays out. And it's a tough issue. And it is the basis for understanding the race issue in the world today. And that is simply as number one racist in all the universe is God. Do you ever study the word race? Isn't that kind of a weird term to use for a nationality or a gender? I mean, we can talk about cultures. We can talk about ethnic groups. But why the word race? Why did somebody choose the word race to discriminate all the different peoples of the world? 
The answer to that is found in Romans chapter 1 and throughout the Bible. It's because Noah had three boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Those three boys represent all the populace of the world today. Every people group on this planet comes from either those three directly or an intermixing of those three that produce the world's population. From Genesis chapter 1, those three boys, here it comes, have been in a race. Now just let that soak in. Those three boys have been in a race. You know who they've been in a race with? He said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. All the nations on this planet have been in a race against God's people all back through the Bible. And we as Gentiles do not appreciate God discriminating against me and putting the Jew on top. I was in a court situation one time where I was called in to be a, uh, a material, in a witness. And they were trying to trash the person that was, was and I was called in as a, I'm not even sure what I was called in for. But they were, they were trying to get me to say all kinds. You know how the lawyers are. Don't you, John? You know that? Okay. And so they had called me as a witness, and I didn't want to be there. I wasn't sympathetic to either cause. But I'm subpoenaed, so you go. And, and I thought, you know what? Somewhere in here, God's going to give me a chance to witness. So I'm going to go. So I'm sitting in there. Courtroom's packed. Should a stenographer go into town over here, you know? Judge sitting up there, lawyers over there, put me on a stand. Now, the, the company, the, the people who are trying to, after this other person, want to paint this person as a, as a bad person. And so, they, they, you know how they bring up everything. And so, they're going to use me, see, to make this person a bad person. So, he asked me a bunch of questions, you know, leading questions. And, and I just simply, you know, sat there. And then he says, Mr. Alexander, let me ask you a question. How long have you known so-and-so? And I told him. I said, uh, have you had a pretty close relationship with so-and-so? And I said, uh, yeah, pretty close. And then he, you know how they walk back and forth, and then they go like this. Would you say that so-and-so is a racist? I said, I wouldn't have any idea. He walks back and forth. And he said, well, let me ask you, Alexander, are you a racist? I said, absolutely. He said, would you like to explain that? I said, Yes. I believe that the nation of Israel is going to rule the world someday. Anything else, counselor? That's a wrong question to ask me. See, what they wanted to do is to put, make it a race issue, see? And so he says, are you a racist? Absolutely. I believe that someday the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, are going to rule the world and all of us Gentiles are going to be under their foot. Whoa. You should have, did you ever see a stenographer hiccup with her fingers? Woo, man. I would have liked to see that transcript. Mr. Alexander, are you a racist? Yes, I am. Would you like to explain that? Okay. Oh, man, this thing really went crazy here. He went off the wall. Now, let me explain my position on this. I'm a Gentile. I'm an Anglo-Saxon of the Caucasian group, people group. 
I'm Anglo-Saxon. My heritage background is English-Welsh. My family were coal miners out of Frostburg, Maryland. My granddaddy was a coal miner. His granddaddy was a coal miner. And on back from there, we come from England and Welsh. I'm Anglo-Saxon. You know what that means? Anglo means England. Saxon is Northern Germany or Saxony. We're called Anglo-Saxons because of the fact that back in the 5th and 6th century, the Saxons invaded Normandy or native England and took over, conquered England, and so it became Anglo-Saxon. That's where your English language comes from. It's a mixture of English, Anglish, and Saxony, German, and it all goes together with a little, like a big bowl of chili, you know, you put a lot of ingredients in and out come the English language, okay? I'm Anglo-Saxon. I'm a Gentile. I'm not a Jew. I am a Gentile. And I'm a Gentile and I'm a Caucasian. But the moment I got saved, I quit being a Gentile. You say, well, you still look like a Gentile. I don't care what I look like. I know what I am. I may be in a Gentile body and I still may trace my ancestry back to England and, and Welsh or, or Wales. But the bottom line is I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus now. I don't think like a Gentile anymore. I am a racist in this sense. I believe that God is going to set the nation of Israel over all of the world. Do I believe there's difference in the races? Absolutely. That's what the Bible says God made them for. But the bottom line is this. I don't care what color you are, what race you are. As soon as you get born again and in the body of Christ, there is no race anymore. I don't care if you're black. I don't care if you're yellow. I don't care if you're chartreuse. I don't care if you're purple. Once you're saved, you're my brother and sister in Christ. The color barrier doesn't exist. You're not a Gentile anymore. You're not black anymore. I'm not white anymore. If you want a good color, we're all red. We're painted with the blood of Christ. Amen. Didn't mean to spit on your forehead there, but it was a little spot there anyhow. I'll teach you to sit in the front row. That's the truth of the matter, you see. Now, because of that, we don't get caught up in this world anymore. We don't. We don't get caught up in the world anymore. We just don't. We just don't. And I understand now, and maybe you can't get this next thing that I'm saying. But let me tell you what God does, what God really cares about. See, we got all kinds of weird ideas. You know, last week was a Martin Luther King Day on Monday. And I'll tell you, you guys, if you ever want a good style of preaching, listen to Martin Luther King. Now, I don't agree with everything he said, but you want somebody who can communicate, I, I, all day long they had about his death, his life, his great speech in Washington, D.C., the march in Selma, Alabama, and the speech down there. I think, I mean, and again, I don't agree with everything he said, but I think his communicative skills were off the chart. And if you want to learn, I mean, I think you ought to listen to Joe Olstein. I don't believe anything he says. <laughs> if I had that little guy, I'd pull him by his little curly locks and run him out the door and throw him out the door and say, okay, now, open your Bibles, I'm going to tell you the truth. Yeah. Right? <laughs> But he's a great communicator. I mean, anybody fill up 10,000 people, but I'm not sure. I think some of those people in that big auditorium, you see, you just see, I think some of those up there are cardboard cutouts. <laughs> Jimmy, find where you order cardboard cutouts. I want to get some for in here. But I mean, he's like this. I love it. Here's Joe Osteen without saying anything.
watch him. But boy, he gets him communicating. He does. I learn from anybody. You can give me, I'll tell you what, you can learn from anybody on planet. I don't care how bad they are. I personally think the greatest preacher in the, oh, this will sound good on tape. I think the greatest preacher in the 20th century was Adolf Hitler. You ever see him in some of those things? Boy, you're talking about a guy who's passionate about, I mean, he's wrong. Died and went to hell. Messed up with God's people. God messed with him. But boy, in Munich, 1933, 1934, Hey, you watch the people listening to him. They're down there. You know, you got to be some motivator to get 8 million of your people to go commit suicide against the Russians and the Americans and everybody else and think you could win. Woo, that's a preacher. Preaching the wrong stuff. But boy, he could preach. I still don't know what he was saying, but boy, it sounded good to me. I'm sitting there going, big smile, big smile, big smile. I'm with you, man. But you, you can learn by anybody. Probably except for me. But anyway, you can learn from anybody. But, you know, and I, I, I but, but, but we got the idea today that all men are created equal. Now, you are in one sense. And that is the fact that we're all created equal. We ought to die and go to hell. If you want some equality in our birth, we're all born with an image, lost, fallen image of Adam. And the only equality we all have is the fact that someday, if Jesus doesn't intervene in your life, we're all going to burn like a torch in the lake of fire. Other than that, there are none. I don't know how you could say that. I mean, do you think, I mean, did you ever read the book of Philemon? Somebody said one time, well, won't you think it's terrible that all the people were slaves? Yeah, I do. And if I was God, there'd never be any slavery because I think slavery's wrong. But what's my two cents in the pocket worth? And I'll tell you something else. God never intended man to be in slavery. God intended man to be in the garden naked, running around, eating the fruit all day long, and doing whatever he wanted to do. But you chose another path, didn't we? You ladies did that one for us. <laughs> Sorry, 6,000 years of pain, suffering, and misery, and death, and you're sorry? <laughs> Me too. Oh, you know what? If you'd have been Eve and he'd have been Adam, I know how it would have worked. Yeah, same thing. You'd have down there, and the devil would have said, hey, you want a bite of the apple? You said, oh, I love apples. And you'd have done that thing, and then Jimmy would have home. Walked in there and said, hi, Evie Pammy. Whoa, what happened to you today? She said, well, the salesman came by and brought us a Buddha, a Buddha, a Buddha, a Buddha yeah, a, a, a bunch of luscious fruit. And he says, he says, well, what? He said, whoa, well, you're not, did he get him off that tree? And she said, yeah. He said, well, God said not to. And she said, well, but it was good fruit, and I ate it. And he said, okay, honey, I'll go with you. Same mess. But me and her have been the same mess. I'd have had it a little longer, but it'd have been the same mess. But the same mess with you. But the same mess with you. 
you'd have went down quicker. Same mess with you. Same mess with you. Oh man. Talk to me later. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you how that thing went. Hey, we're all in a mess, man. I don't know what to tell you. I'll tell you. I just don't. We get the idea that God. Hey, let me tell you something. There's only two things God cares about. And you better get this. If you don't hear nothing else I say, it puts all the context of Romans in context. There's only two things God cares about. One, God the Father cares about His nation Israel. And God will, don't take my word for it. Go back to Isaiah chapter 40 verse 15. Go back to Psalms chapter 9 verse 17. Go back to Isaiah 64 2. Jeremiah 3, 30 verse 11. Jeremiah 46. You know what he says? God says, let me paraphrase. I will wipe out every nation and make a full end to every nation but you. That's discrimination. In that nation's plural is America, England, Russia, China, India, all of them except one. God says, the rest of you nations, I don't care about you like I drop in a bucket. God cares about one thing, folks, one thing. It isn't who wins the Super Bowl. Oh, I got to, uh, last week, oh, this is great. I watched the championship game between uh, whoever played it and, and the New York won. Well, I don't follow them things. And, and, I, and afterwards, the post game, the guy says, there's this guy up there, and, and I'm glad New York won because it's going to be a good Super Bowl. You know what? And I don't really care. But I'm glad they won. But the interviews, he comes up and the guy says, well, you guys were behind all, because they pulled it out in a great thing at the end. And he says, well, it was, it was, uh, it was a great a great play, great finish. Uh, what did you guys decide to do to pull this thing out? And the guy looks at him and he says, well, we just, we come to the conclusion that we just put it in God's hands and it just worked out. Now, if that isn't discrimination, they won. God just discriminated against the other team. They actually think God's up there, you know, and I heard somebody else say, well, yeah, old Vince Lombardi, you know, and uh, God are up there having a beer together watching the game. That's the mindset we have. We think God cares who wins the Super Bowl. We think God cares about human rights, civil rights. Let me tell you something. We're living in a Laodicean church period. You know what Laodicea means? It means rights of the people. It's a church age that puts its rights up against everything else and forgets God's rights. If you're a Christian here today, you don't have any rights. You were bought with a price. You're a bond slave, bought on the block. You have no say in what you do, where you go. Somebody says, go to the church of your choice. Don't go to the church of your choice. Go to the church of God's choice. Amen. Don't read the Bible of your choice. Read the Bible that God reads. Amen. You don't have any rights to decide for yourself. Who do you think you are? I'll tell you who you think you are. You, you're, a, you're thinking like a Gentile. When I got saved, I gave up being a Gentile. I'm not a Gentile anymore. I'm now a Christian. And if you're a Jew and you get saved, you're not a Jew anymore. In the body of Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Paul says back there, he says to them, he says, once time, you were Gentiles. Not anymore. You're not anymore. And I'm telling you. Guy said to me one time, he said, well, I, I just think slavery is terrible. And I said, I do too. He said, well, you know, the black man was enslaved for, for, you know, years and years, hundreds of years. And I said, yeah. I said, I know it's a terrible thing. And if I was in charge, I'd have abolished slavery right out of the ball because I don't think it's terrible too. But you know what? 
you're not going to get too much sympathy from God on the slavery issue. You know why? I'll tell you why. God called his people out. Listen to me. Quit thinking like a Gentile. God called his people out in Exodus or in, uh, in uh, Genesis with Abraham. He brings them up, and then at the end of the book of Genesis, he sends his own people into slavery. 450 years he put his nation, his people, in slavery. It wasn't by accident. It was, and there was, and Moses, Moses, the great deliverer, 450 years, the nation of Israel was a bond slave to Egypt by God's design. Then he brings them out, Exodus chapter 12. He takes them into the land. Get this. He sets them up. They give him a sharp stick in the eye and say, no thanks, God. And he says, I'll show you. 606 B.C., he put them back in slavery for the next 2,600 years. Think God cares about your penalty problems or mine? I had a guy one time that was a pastor of church, and he was a good guy. This boy got involved in drugs and got involved in some things that was wrong. And the pastor, he didn't, he didn't parley around with it. He dealt with it. He didn't try to sweep it under the rug like a lot of pastors do. He brought the kid in before the church. He said, my son's done wrong. Kid says, you know what? I don't want to do what's right. Dad churched his own son and threw him out of the church. About a year later, one of the deacons were having problems with the kids. And the, and the pastor said, we need to get a handle on this. Why don't I meet with you and your family? And the whole family come in with a kid. And the pastor said to the deacon, you can't have your kid doing this. Deacon said, well, you know what? My son deserves this, but under that, you don't do what's right. We'll leave the church. You know what the pastor said? He said, I'm going to tell you something. I kicked my own son out of church. What's I think I'm going to cut you any slack? You know what God did? God put his own people in slavery. He's going to cut you any slack? I don't agree with it. But I ain't God. I know this. I know this. I'll tell you where everybody misses the mark today. You don't get free. You don't get free by getting out of slavery. The Emancipation Proclamation didn't free anybody. Civil War didn't free anybody. It, most black men, people today, they traded a white master for the white master of cocaine. White people are just as much slaves today to the sins of this world as the black people are. Or the white, yellow people. Or the red people. Or the orange people. I said it. You don't get free from the outside in. You get free from the inside out. Amen. When you get saved, you get born again, you get free. Amen. Now, Gentiles can't deal with that. Most 20th century Christians can't deal with that. Let me tell you something. Back in the 1600s, over there in Germany, there was two guys by the name of Count Zindendorf. Count Zindendorf. Uh, in August Spandenberg, Count Zindendorf had a little, had a big uh, thing over there where a big parcel of land. He was a baron. And there was a little group of Bible believers called Moravians who were being severely persecuted. So he opened up his, all his vast land and gave them a town that they could build on his land parcel. Then he began to work with them and he trained them for the missionaries, the greatest missionary movement around the world. You see, they knew nothing about civil rights. They knew nothing about human rights. They knew nothing about any of the things that we get so caught up in today. They didn't know any of that. 
They just knew that they were set free the day they got saved. Those Moravians went all around the world. You know where some of them went? Some of them had a burden for the black people that were put in slaves in Africa and a white man, a Moravian Japhethite from Europe, sold himself into slavery never to be free again, never to go where he wants to go, do what he wanted to do, eat what he wanted to eat, have his own personal liberties and freedom. He sold them and gave the money to the trip to get where he needed to go and sold himself into slavery so he could reach as a missionary the very slaves that were in slavery. Did he lead a revolt to have them sink the ships, cut the chains. No, he freed them from the inside, the real slave master, the devil himself, who wants to make you a bond slave to this world. Oh, we've lost the concept. All the problems all through the Bible is one thing. It's Shem, Ham, and Japheth in a race for who's the top dog. Who's number one? And when God, who discriminates against Ham and Japheth in the Old Testament, we don't like it. And we develop an attitude toward God and the Jews. And the real issue in the world today is simply this. When push comes to shove, who's going to run the race? That's all. Gentiles think God cares about all these things. you got people that think that God's a member of the civil rights groups. you got member people that think God's a member of the Southern Christian League you got member people that think God's a member of La Rosa or joined the NAACP. you got people that think that God is the leader of the white Aryan supremacy movement. you got people in this world today that think God wears a Ku Klux Klan hood and a badge. you got some people that think God has a big red cross or goes out collecting for UNICEF or United Way. you got people that think God's a Democrat. You got people that think God's a Republican because we're conservative. We have core values. God is on our side. We are absolutely nuts. God cares nothing about those things. God the Father cares about one thing that is bringing his nation, his people, the nation of Israel back to him and he will wipe out any Gentile, any nation that gets in his way. I told you many, many times, World War I got the land ready for the Jew. World War II got the Jew ready for the land. And when God moved to get his people back, you talk about discrimination. If I was still a Gentile, if I have not had passed from being a Gentile to being a Christian, three people groups in your Bible, okay? The Jew, the church, and the uh, Gentiles. I'm neither one anymore. I'm now a Christian. I'm not a Gentile. Somebody says, you Republican or Democrat? I'm a Bible-believing Christian. Well, who are you going to vote for in an election? The one that's going to bring in the Antichrist quicker. (laughs) Or in some cases, the one who may be the Antichrist. I don't get into those things. I am not a (laughs) participant. I am not a participant in these world events. I am an observer. You know why I'm not a participant? Because I already know how it's going to end. You think I care? You think God cares? 
Let me tell you something. When God wanted to get his people back, and they went back in 1948, after 2,600 years of slavery, God had to move and order all of planet Earth. Why, in the early 1930s, when the Jews saw building in Europe, you know what they tried to do? They tried to get out of Europe. Somebody said one time, why didn't them Jews get out before Hitler closed the door? They tried. They got on ships, hundreds of them, thousands of them, and they sailed literally around the world, and every port, the Gentiles said, no thanks. Singapore, no thanks. United States, no thanks. England, no thanks. France, no thanks. Every nation on this planet closed their door so they went right back to Germany and God fed them right into the ovens of Auschwitz, Treblinka, Buchenwald, and Mauthausen. Because God was getting his people ready. And when he was ready to move in World War II, God killed 500,000 Americans, 6 million Jews, 8 million Slavs, 26 million Russians, 20 million Germans, 22 million Japanese, 4 million uh, English, uh, 4 million Chinese, all to get his people back. Over 90 million Gentiles wiped out just to get them back in the land in 1948. That's discrimination. If I was a Gentile, that ticked me off. In World War II... We thought God was on our side. The Germans thought he was on their side too. Did you ever read Eisenhower's speech to the D-Day boys before they jumped in and parachuted in on, on June the 5th before D-Day? Oh, it's an incredible thing. Passed a letter out. Words like this. The endeavor we're about to enter into is unparalleled in history. As he closes down through there, he says, May God be, each with, each, may God be with each of you. May God's grace and his hand be upon you. May God deliver us from all the oppression of this world and set us as free people. May God, 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 God. Over on the other side of the English Channel in those trenches was the Wehrmacht with the SS. And on their little uniforms down on their little belt buckles, you know what they had a little inscription that said? It says, Gott bitten mitten. It means God is with us. They thought God was on their side. We thought God was on our side. I got some great news. God wasn't on either side. He's on the Jew side. He let World War I get the land ready for the Jew, and he let World War II get the Jew ready for the land, and in 1948 they came back. Don't you get that? Don't you see how God discriminates? Don't you understand the book of Romans is about understanding how the inside works, how Gentiles think? It's exactly what you've got. That's exactly what you've got. And when you put it all together, you begin to understand that the word race the word race comes from the race that those three boys are in to rule the world. Do you know what history was between 1900 B.C. and 606 B.C.? It was a race. It was Shem and the nation of Israel running the world and Japheth and Ham getting clobbered. Do you know what history was from 606 B.C. to the birth of Christ? It was a race. It was a race between Japheth and Ham to run the world and the Jews got clobbered. Do you know what history was from 500 A.D. to 1600 A.D.? It was Japheth running the world. It was a race through Europe and killing anybody who did not follow them. And the Christians and the Jews got clobbered. Do you know what history was from 1600 to 1900? It was a race. It was Japheth running the world through England, and Shem and Ham paid the price. Do you know what history was from 1900 to 2008 where we're at today? It is Japheth 
with two real wars under his belt and two more big ones coming, trying to dominate the world through the United States, Germany, England, and Russia, and France, and all the nations that go along with it. And that is what they, and, and the question is, how do you and I survive in this race? Because the word race is nothing more than those three boys in a race to who gets to run the world. For a while, it's white power, then it's black power, then it's Russian power, then it's mafian power, then it's Rome power. Hey, at the end of the day, it's going to be Jew power. God is a racist. He's a discriminator. He'll discriminate against your rights and my rights 24-7. He is going to, and now God cares about one thing, that is bringing his nation back to him. Christ cares about one thing. One thing only. Doesn't care about Super Bowl. You got to get this. This is what messes with your mind as a Gentile. Most of you probably are saved in here, but you still think like a Gentile. That's a terrible situation to be in. You've never recognized you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. You don't understand it. You're now, once you got saved, you're seated in heavenly places. You don't understand it now. This whole world is not your home. You're just passing through. Your home's laid up there somewhere beyond the blue. Amen. You don't know that. You're saved. You're on your way to heaven. And if the rapture came right now, you're going to go up to heaven and say, what is this place? Whoa, man. Whoa, whoa. Look at that big guy with wings over there. I wonder who he is. If he's got wings, you're in the wrong place. I'm going to tell you that. <laughs> Throw that out to you. We're saved, but we think like Gentiles. I understand that being free is not about slavery, civil rights, or human rights. Being real freedom has to do with God's salvation, setting you free. And when you become a Christian, you're now seated in heavenly places. You're an ambassador. Your home is up in heaven. You're a pilgrim in a strange land. And so you don't think that way anymore. So when we approach Romans chapter 1, we are looking at ourselves. The way we once were. And we've changed, or we should have been changed. You ought to know that all God cares about. All God the Father cares about is restoring the nation. You ought to know enough about the Bible to see how God... Read Psalm 78 sometime. There's a hundred passages that tells you how God was burdened for them. How God's heart was broken for them. That He called them out. He loved them. He nourished them. He cherished them. He gave them everything. He, he patted away. He gave them all of the things that he never gave the other nations. He gave them religious rights, political rights. He gave them everything that he never gave the other nations. And they looked at him and they said, no, thanks, God. They turned their back on him. And God says, I love you. You're my people. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring you back as my people. And I don't care if i got to wipe out the whole world to do it. And that's what he's going to do. <laughs> then you got Christ. How could you be saved and not understand Song of Solomon chapter 2? How could you be saved and not see the burden of God's Son on the cross for you and for me? How could you be saved and, not, and miss the fact? How could you equate Christ's death on the cross? Really, how could you look at the death on the cross and think any way, shape, or form that was concerned with who won the Super Bowl? My God, people. My God, where are we at today? We look at the death of the cross and what it means to us is maybe God will let me win the lottery. 
My God, people, where are we at today? We've lost the reality that the only thing Christ cares about is his bride. He's like some young guy that is engaged in the most beautiful woman in the world. He can't wait to have her. Can't wait to be with her. Can't wait to see her. And tomorrow's his wedding day. And he can't wait. So he's sneaking around, looking in the window to catch a glimpse of her. He's waiting in the bushes to see her walk out to her car. He just wants to catch a little glimpse. To the day when they walk down together and God the Father says, You're now one together. That's what he wants. He wants you and me as the bride of Christ. Too bad you and I don't want him the same intensity he wants us. Too bad his thoughts all day long. I don't know what they do up in heaven, but I know one thing. God, Christ's thought process is about one thing. He's not looking down here to see what. He's looking at you. He wants to be with you, his bride. He loves you. Now, the obvious question is, well, when God is killing all those Gentiles, how does the Christians fit in? You know what? I'll tell you how they fit in. You go do what God. There was good saved people in World War I, good saved people in World War II. And if they were untouched and on fire for God, good saved people in Korea, good saved people in Vietnam, good saved people in the Gulf War, and good saved people are in Iraq right now. And if they got their head on, you know what they're doing? They're God's missionaries paid for by the expense of the government. About 20 years ago, I met a guy. He's dead now. His name was Jacob the Shazer. Jacob DeShazer changed my life in one 25-minute meeting with him. I met him at a military show. He did not know that I was not the norm of the guy that was going to talk to him because I knew about Jacob DeShazer. And I, he gave me 25 minutes of his time, and it changed my life. It showed me as a Gentile how you look at it one way, and then the hand of God changes it. You know who Jacob DeShazer was? He was a bombardier on one of the planes of Doolittle's flight that bombed Tokyo. The 7 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Devastated our Pacific forces. <clears throat> I mean, we lost our whole fleet other than a few carriers that weren't there and a few World War I antique battleships. We were in bad, and nobody maybe knows to this day how bad and how close we've come to losing that war. America needed a boost of morale. So somebody come up with an idea. <clears throat> of putting 16 B-25 medium-range bombers on a carrier, the Hornet, putting a task force around it by Admiral Halsey and getting them 600 miles to Japan. Now, you could take off of these carriers, but you couldn't land on them. It was a gamble. What they wanted to do was show Japan, we're still here, and we're invincible. And we're not, you're not invincible. So they, they, they went so far, got as far as they could, and those 16 planes flew off. Jacob DeShazer was a bombardier. He had lost his best friend at Pearl Harbor. And Jacob DeShazer, Jacob DeShazer enlisted and volunteered for the Doolittle Raid because he had a hatred for the Japanese. Jacob DeShazer's target was over Tokyo. They bombed Tokyo. Many of the planes never got back. They had to take off eight hours earlier. So they knew they weren't going to make it into, into China. And many of them crashed. A couple of the crews fell prisoner to the Japanese soldier. Jacob DeShazer was one of those men. Jacob DeShazer was taken prisoner. 
the captain of his ship was beheaded. They put him the most cruel punishment that you ever could imagine. Down at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, they were in a prisoner of war camp. And when they liberated a prisoner of war camp, they pick up the boards off the floor. And they're down in Wright-Patterson Air Force Base right now where Jacob the Shazer and three other guys write their names on these boards underneath because they thought for sure they were going to be killed any day. And they wanted somebody maybe to find these boards that said on this and day, these three guys, four guys had survived. And they all inscribed their name and put it back on the floor. That plank is down at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base with a memorial to the Doolittle Raid. They took him to Japan, put him in a solitary confinement. He, had, he was seething with rage. He was starved almost to death. He hated the Japanese. And one day, one day, to this day he does not know how. While he was asleep, he woke up and there was a Bible on his bunk. A King James 1611 authorized version in English. He began to read that Bible. And through the reading of that Bible and God's Holy Spirit, Jacob the Shazer got saved. I sat down there and I said, Mr. DeShazer, I said, do you know? He said, to this day, Bob, he said, I do not know who put that Bible there. I only know is it changed my life. You know what Jacob DeShazer did at the end of the war? He went back to the United States. He enlisted in Bible college and he went back to Japan. And for the next 35 years, he was an evangelist to the Japanese mainland. You know what else happened? In his second revival, a man came down, tears running down his face, and got saved. He wanted to talk to Mr. DeJazer because he had told his testimony that night, as he often did. That man that came down and got saved with tears running down his face, a little Japanese guy. His name was Roko Shifushi. He was the lead pilot of the raid of Pearl Harbor. And for the next 35 years, Jacob DeJazer and Lafushi went all through Japan brought hundreds of thousands of Japanese people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what God does with Christians when he's whipping the nations. He uses you wherever you're at. It may be a foxhole at Bastogne. It may be behind a beachhead on, on Normandy. It, it, it may be somewhere in Burma or Thailand. It may be in China. It may be in a prisoner of war camp, in a stalag. He'll use you wherever you're at because no matter what he's doing with the nation, he wants you and me as his body to be the missionaries wherever he sends us. But you know what you got to do to be able to do that? You got to be able to understand the book of Romans chapter 1. You got to understand how Gentiles think. You got to understand why unsaved people do the things they do, why they say the things they say, and why they look at things the way that they do. <coughs> This church, <clears throat> for it to continue to grow, and it will, <clears throat> we have to stop <clears throat> thinking like Gentiles. The race card can never enter into this church, ever. It won't as long as I'm pastor. If you're saved here, you know what? You're my brother and sister in Christ. I don't care what color you are. It doesn't matter to me because we're all under the blood of Christ. We're all in the family of God. <clears throat> if you're not saved, let me just tell you this. I don't care what color you are, you're going to burn like a torch for all of eternity. It's just that simple. God is a God who wants to save you. God wants to put you into a body made up of Gentiles called the church that no matter what we can, go read the Acts chapter 11, the early church at Antioch. They had every diverse group, minority group that was even in existence in that church. 
They had the blacks. They had the Shemites. They had the, they had the Gentiles. They were all together in one bond because they knew what God had called them to do. That's the church. But you've got to start looking and seeing it the way God sees it. You've got to let the book of Romans do what God intended it to do for you. Shape your thinking. You've got to let what I do every Sunday, every Thursday, and every time we're together. I don't want to tell you what to think, but I want to make you think. And let you understand where you're at and what you're dealing with. Every head bowed and every eye closed.